Good morning, church. So good to see all of you here today. Let's pray before we begin. Father, this teaching, taking from your word, is for me, for the congregation, and for all who may hear it. We pray now for the Holy Spirit to guide the presentation of this sermon and our thinking as we consider and apply your message to our personal lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, today I have the privilege of sharing about something that is very precious to me, family. I know it's precious to you, too. I just see all the precious children here and know that we enjoy having families. Of course, that term, uh, as far as family, may mean different things to different groups, By the way, let me just say this. If you happen to be here 14 years ago when I preached my first sermon, trembling, (laughs) as maybe I am a little bit today too, um, from the pioneer pulpit, that is, you may have heard some of this family story that I'm going to tell you next, that I'm going to share with you. However, I'm sure you've probably forgotten it. It's not very much that you're going to hear anyway. However, it seemed fitting to me that today I should look back. It's an appropriate time to look back since I'm retiring at the end of this month. And this is my last sermon from the Pioneer Pulpit as a member of the PMC pastoral team. Picture this scene with me, if you would now. My grandpa is sitting in a rocking chair near the front door of a humble country home whose tin roof has provided shelter for numbers of years for nine children and their parents, Joseph and Katie Chesney. My grandpa, or we called him Peppa, Peppa loved to read. And he always had a stack of books by that rocking chair by the door. I think, you know, I have some of my Peppa's DNA My books just have to be piled on my desk. Anyway, he was in that rocking chair, one that I remember rocking in with my papa and with my grandma when I was a little girl. I've been told when papa had time to rest in that rocking chair, which wasn't very often, he was very busy. Can you imagine trying to have enough money in the home with one person working to feed nine children? So he was busy. But when he could sit down in that rocking chair, he would often have a book in his hand. And one day, as he was sitting there, there was a knock on the door. And he didn't have to open the door. The door was already open. It was summertime. He just looked through the screen, and there's this young man. And uh, he looked at him, and guess what that young man had in his hand? It was a book. (laughs) It was a book. And so right away, I'm sure my grandpa was interested in this guy has a book in his hand. In fact, he had several religious books with him, which he was selling. And after he talked a little bit with Papa, though he certainly didn't have any extra money, and I doubt if he even had enough money, Papa bought one of those books that the young man had. It was titled Bible Readings for the Home Circle. Can I see the hands of anybody that's read that book? Okay, how many have just seen that book? We don't see it around too much anymore, but that book 
proved to be very important to the members of my mother's family. And the young Mathador was a Seventh-day Adventist literature evangelist. How many, let me see your hands, how many have had a literature evangelist come to your door? In this community, a lot of you have, (laughs) because we have student literature evangelists. This one, this young man, went from home to home sharing the good news about Jesus and also selling some religious books, one of which was the Bible readings for the home circle. On that day, this young man was contacting people in the rural area of Strawberry Plains, Tennessee. Doesn't that sound like a good place to live? Strawberries. (laughs) I think it sounds like a good place to live because I was born there. Some years later, of course. (laughs) Because this young man stopped by the home of my grandparents, today there are many members of the family of God, many of which are Seventh-day Adventist. My mother was one of those nine children, Papa Joe and Mama Katie, as well as my parents, Zenith Chesney Randolph and Robert Eugene Randolph, my dad, are all asleep in Jesus. And you can be sure we're looking forward to the day when we'll have a real family reunion when Jesus wakes them all up. Just recently, I was on vacation for a few days, and some members of my family traveled to Michigan from, what do you think? Strawberry Plains, Tennessee, (laughs) to visit us, including my sister Kathy Reed and her husband Ed, and a cousin, Troy Chesney. Troy was, by the way, his father was one of my mom's brothers, Uncle Leland. And Troy had his wife, Margaret, with him. And uh, so I hadn't seen my uh, cousins, Troy and his wife, in lots of years. So it was good to see them, all of them. And together with these relatives, we decided when they got to our house that we're going to plan a mini M-I-N-I family reunion. Because let me tell you, when our family all gets together, it is not many (laughs) M-I-N-I. It is huge. And everybody's talking at one time. So anyway, together with these relatives from Tennessee, we planned a mini family reunion inviting those relatives that live in this area, in Berrien Springs, Michigan, which is also a nice place to live. It even sounds like fruit to me because there's lots of it here. Our daughter and her family, Kara, Anna, and Richard Kerr, came. And my brother and sister-in-law, Gary and Karen Randolph. And by the way, Karen's two brothers happened to be visiting from the South, Jim and Harold Foote. And so they came. And then Krista and Cassie Metzger, that would be Gary and Karen's daughter and granddaughter. And their son, Kevin, and Shalini, his wife, Randolph. They're all from this area. They all showed up for this family reunion. And what a wonderful time we had. We, we ate supper together. We ate and ate. We talked. We remembered. And we laughed till our sides hurt. You, you can picture this, probably because maybe some of you have family reunions like that. And um, it was what Tennesseans call a regular hootenanny. Some of you look a little blank, like, what in the world is a hootenanny? And so I had to look it up because I really didn't know. I just knew that was a big time together. But one definition of hootenanny is it's an old country word for party. It's always a party. 
And then we indeed had a party at our house. Uh, Recently, I was thinking about um, all of the families, other than our birth families, that Richard and I have been privileged to be members of throughout the years. From our college days as young parents, and now when we are grandparents of young adults. Through the years, we have served as church employees at academies and conferences and unions and one university. And that we lived in Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, and then Michigan again. We've been blessed with so many wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ. So, you know, you heard me say, what I get to present about today is something that's precious to me, family. Interestingly, both Richard and I have lived longer in Michigan than we did in our birth states. Uh, So Michigan has a special place in our hearts. And as I look at you all this morning, by the way, you know if I was in Strawberry Plains, Tennessee, I would say, and as I look at y'all this morning, (laughs) so looking back, I'll just say y'all. As I look at you, I see another family. It's my PMC, our PMC family. And uh, we've been here for more than 18 years. Wow. Time flies, and we have lots of terrific memories that we've made. Today, in our time together, we want to focus on another family. And as we study, I think you're going to agree with me that this family is indeed the most important family of all. Uh, And as we read books in the New Testament that are attributed to the Apostle Paul as being the author, you know, sometimes there's discussions about, well, maybe he wasn't the author, maybe somebody uh, else was. But the books that are attributed to him, we find out that Paul was an evangelist, so he traveled, he went all over the place, and he was a church planter who raised up a number of churches, some of which were in Galatia, Thessalonica, Corinth, Rome, Philippi, Ephesus, and I'll try that again. Colossians people lived in (laughs) Colossae. I believe that's it. Anyway, in Paul's loving letters of instruction and encouragement to the churches, we can see and we can hear how much Paul cared for his church families. And in many ways, he cared for them, such as he was a brother in Christ He was a church father. He was a counselor and a teacher of Christians, new Christians, both Jews and Gentiles. And he was also a stewardship pastor. He was an encourager to new members and to young workers in the faith, training Timothy and Titus as some of those. Our focus today will be on a few sentences from one of Paul's letters. And it's the letter that was written to the churches in Ephesus. Ephesians was probably a circular letter uh, where it came to one church, they read it, passed it on to the next church. And um, that was a common form, I'm sure, of communication at that time for the letter to be passed on. Um, I've noticed in the Amish community, which Richard and I had an opportunity to get very well acquainted with when we lived in Ohio, we had um, Amish people that actually built our home there. And one of the things I've learned is that they do circular letters to this day. 
uh, they send it to a family. That family adds on what they've been doing. So they add to the letter. And then they pass it on to another family. And this is, um, I'm sure, a big, long circular letter by the time it ends up back to them. As we have learned, Paul probably wrote Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, um, while he was a prisoner in Rome. And this was his second prison time in Rome, the one from which he eventually lost his life. And he did not leave the prison in Rome. So um, as we turn to Ephesians 2 now and look at verses 19 through 22, in your Bible, or you'll, the words will also be on the screen. Here Paul is addressing the coming together, coming together of the Jewish and Gentile Christians. And beginning with verse 19 in chapter 2, we read, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now when we hear... Now, therefore, what do we think? We think something happened before, don't we? Because those are connecting words, uh, referring to something that Paul has shared earlier in the letter. So if we look back to the first 18 verses of this chapter, we're speaking up at verse 19, but if we read back into the 18 verses before, Paul has been speaking to the church members about the development of unity between the Jewish and Gentile Christians. And I'm going to briefly summarize those verses. Uh, Here Paul reminds the Jews and the Gentile Christians that you who were formerly far off have been brought near, are together, by the blood of Christ who is our peace. Who has made, Christ has made both groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, into one body through his death on the cross, thereby reconciling the two groups of Jews and Gentiles into one man, our one human race. Now, if we look back at Ephesians 2.19 again and uh, say, now, therefore, or we could say, so then... You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In uh, George Knight's devotional commentary titled Exploring Galatians and Ephesians on page 219, uh, first of all, we learn that the Apostle Paul is excited about what God has done in Christ. Not only uh, has he saved many people, but he saved them all on the same basis, that basis being grace. We all need it, don't we? We're saved by grace. But that identical approach to salvation leads to a, he calls it, profound equality. Profound would be deep, intense, a profound equality among Christians that breaks down barriers and any airs of superiority and provides the basis for the unity of all God's people in his universal church. As noted, these quotes from Dr. Knight 
speak of God's universal church, which we can translate as the family of God. And in this same devotional commentary, he has shared three snapshots of the changes that have happened as a result of the Jewish, uh, Christian Jews and Gentiles becoming one race, our, one, our humanity, our one family. Here's, here's some sh- uh, snapshot number one. I'm sorry I don't have this for the screen. So um, it starts out by saying, you are no longer strangers but fellow citizens with the saints. The saints that he's referring to in this case are the Jewish Christians. Why would he do that? Is that because they were better than everybody else? First service, I heard a big no. (laughs) That's true. They weren't better than anyone else. Um, You will remember that in the Old Testament period, God had set the Jewish people apart as a holy nation. Thus, the Jews had been God's saints. And Paul, in his letters uh, to the churches, he would often call them saints, wouldn't he? He would say, greetings to the saints at Ephesus or something like that. So, um, these, these people were called saints because they had been appointed for holy living. And were they always saints? How many's read the Old Testament were they always saints? Are we always saints? <laughs> I think that probably the answer to that is a resounding no. They weren't always saints. Um, and they did not always live holy. So the Gentiles were not part of that restricted group at that time. They were outsiders and they were alienated, as stated in verse 12 of chapter 2. So backing up again in chapter 2. And they were strangers to the covenants of the promise. This is referring to the promise that God made to Abraham. Whenever Abraham was questioning how he could have an heir, here it says in Genesis chapter 15, that he would have an heir according to God's promise. And Abraham's descendants would be as the stars in the heavens. He had Abraham look up and see the stars in the heavens and saying, your descendants will be as many as those. But things had changed now. Back to Ephesus, the Ephesians. Through the work of Christ and now, the Gentiles were citizens along with the Jews and belonged to the kingdom of God with the Lord himself as the ruler. He was the ruler of the kingdom. We might translate this to say they now belong to the family of God with the Lord himself as head of the church, which is in fact the family of God. In this teaching, Paul makes it clear that Christians are a people, are a nation, distinct from all others. Why or how are we distinct? It says one race, our group of saved people, and the unity of that race, our group, is centered on the fact that they have a common allegiance to one God and Father of us all and are his children and brothers and sisters in Christ. So how do we come in to this and think about it together? Uh, We're going to continue with snapshot number two. We've just looked at something that was our first thought from Knight's commentary. 
In Ephesians in chapter 2 and verse 19, the second snapshot of the church pictures it as being the family of God. We've already read that, haven't we? We are considered to be the family of God. There's also other family type images in Paul's letters to the Ephesians. In his chapter in, uh, in his letter in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes that God destined us in love to be his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Isn't that good to hear? He destined us. And in Ephesians 4, 6, he speaks of one God and Father of all. So you hear me talking about family, don't you? That's very precious to me. Paul's good news for the Gentiles was that they were part of God's family. However, the context of Ephesians in chapter 2 and verse 19 suggests that what he's really trying to get across is that we are brothers and sisters. Unity as a family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, The early Christians referred to themselves as brothers and sisters. So if you were in the church in Ephesus, you might call Brother Paul (laughs) or or sister someone else. And it was by those titles they tended to greet each other back then. And perhaps some of you remember, as I do, that it used to be very common in the Seventh-day Adventist church often to refer to ourselves as um, brother or sister and others as brother or sister. And thankfully, we still hear that some today. I have the opportunity to occasionally join the PMC jail ministry team and with my brothers and sisters minister to the inmates in the Bering County Jail. As many of you know, one of the leaders of this group is Broderick Morris. I have noticed and appreciated so much that Broderick often ends his text messages with Brother Morris and refers to me as Sister Sharon. And we are indeed members of the same family, God's family. This is the um, final snapshot, number three. And here Dr. Knight points out the emphasis on God's temple. He's referring to individual Christians. So we are the temple that is being built together in the dwelling place of God. Here's something I saw that helped me properly visualize what Paul is saying. Somewhere I saw this, four walls don't make a church. You do, I do, we do. We kind of sang that today together, didn't we? Uh, We sang during the children's story, I am the church, you are the church, we are the church together. So from this slide that's coming up now, uh, this is chapter two still, and we're just to verse 20. Please note that this is a dynamic church. And why is it dynamic? The members are being built together. There is continually development, never ever finishes, into a place of God and Jesus, into a dwelling place for God and Jesus, who is himself the cornerstone. No church without a cornerstone. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul gives us a picture of how the family of God who is comprised of different stones, our family members from a broad range of backgrounds are to be unified in the family of God. You know, I see Paul's letter to the Ephesians 
as a message to the Pine and Memorial Church, where we are blessed to have many beautiful stones <laughs> from all over the world. It's like a bit of heaven, isn't it? Say yes, amen, it is. And this fact provides us with special opportunity to reflect to our community and to our world how members from a broad range of backgrounds can unite in harmony to celebrate our mutual salvation by grace in Christ. So what is the church? The Pioneer Memorial Church? It's clearly not just a building. It's not a club. It's not an institution, though we happen to be on the campus of an institution. Instead, it's a family of brothers and sisters who love one another. This is what God desires from us, true love for each other. You know, when we get to heaven, we're going to love God forever. And when we get to heaven, we're going to love our neighbors forever. So right now, here in this place, under our human circumstances, we're supposed to be practicing loving one another, forgiving each other, and working out our differences. Jesus provided a simple solution to how this can happen. You know, sometimes we get bogged down, don't we? And we forget that God has given us directions, and most of the time it's very simple. Here's what Jesus said. You can find this in John 15, verse 12. He says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. That's pretty simple, isn't it? We don't need to get bogged down. It's not complicated. Um, And when we get bogged down in details, we need to just look back and say, what did Jesus say we should do? Love one another as I have loved you. When what we can do here is have a heart for the family of God and follow Jesus and his commandment to love one another, why should we do anything else? So that I leave you with that message today. Love one another as I have loved you.